It's time for another episode of the Let's Go Eat Show. Hello, I'm your host, Bill Allred. This uh, episode was recorded uh, in the uh, club or the cafe at 50 West uh, because I <clears throat> like their French fries and because it's convenient. It's uh, convenient because, well, it's downstairs from uh, the X96 Studios. I just have to walk down one flight of stairs. Or I can even take the elevator if I want to be really lazy. And uh, I do like their French fries a lot. And so that's what I had. I had some French fries, and my guest, newspaperman Glenn Warchall, had a, uh, well, he thought he'd try a hard cider. Uh, it's a uh, apple cider drink with uh, alcohol in it. Uh, I like the French fries. They're great. I like their fry sauce. Glenn was less than thrilled with his cider. Now, uh, a little bit about Glenn Warchall. He's been around uh, the Salt Lake area off and on for a number of years, since the mid mid 80s, I guess. And uh, he's gotten into some trouble here and there for things he's written as a newspaper man in, in this city. Uh, we'll talk at some length about that. Um, he came to Salt Lake uh, as a newspaper writer from Idaho. Uh, before that, well, he started out in Pittsburgh, and he was going to be an educator, but that burned him out, so he decided, I think I'll go into the uh, documentary film business. That, well, He'll tell you all about it, but he ended up as a newspaper man, and then he ended up in Salt Lake City, and then he ended up uh, running afoul of the Mormon church for something he wrote while working for the Deseret News. Hmm. It's an interesting story. Uh, Glenn uh, then went to work for the Salt Lake Tribune. There's a big story there, and uh, he eventually was riffed out, as they say, of the Salt Lake Tribune, and... Uh, you know, Glenn likes to make waves, and he'll tell you all about that as well. He was married to a newspaper woman, and he's married to a magazine woman now. Um, so he's an interesting guy with a lot of stories to tell. We talk about the future of newspapers uh, as well. Oh, one other thing before we get to the interview, please uh, go to our social media, the Let's Go Eat Show social media sites. Go to Twitter, at the Let's Go Eat Show on Twitter, or go to the Let's Go Eat Show Facebook page, or both. Because we'd like you to suggest some guests or a guest for a first of the year show. Probably we'll do in January. All right. Can you do all that? I hope you can. Hope you enjoy this show. Um, uh, thanks to Dylan, my son, for producing the show. And now the interview with Glenn Warchel. So... Uh, Glenn Warchall. How many people mispronounce your name all the time, I'll bet? Glenn, your last name, Warchall? Actually, uh, I pronounce it Warchall. Warchall. But, I, but other people pronounce it correctly, which is like Vortigol or Warchall is actually closer. <laughs> with, the, with the hard C. With the hard C, but my family at Ellis Island apparently went with the Warchall. Yeah, I think I, when I first saw it written, I assumed that it was Warchall. That's what I assumed it was for that's, some reason. That's correct to the original Polish. It's Polish. Um, it's um, a variation, actually, of Warhol. You know, Andy Warhol? Yeah, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They're, the, my family, his family, from the same piece of Poland, Carpathian Mountain area. Mm-hmm. And his father's name was Warkola, like like my name with an A. So, Glenn, where, uh, you, you, you are not, uh, you're Polish by... Uh, 
heritage, but not uh, you weren't born in Poland. Where were no. you, where 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 were we? Glenn, by the way, a uh, writer. Um, uh, a newspaper man uh, originally a newspaper man is that what you yes. wanted to be no no it's a a long uh tortuitous story but uh i uh i started out i was a special ed teacher uh where i i started in georgia and then went to uh, louisiana where i taught uh at a last chance school for teenagers and then at the Louisiana School for the Deaf, I taught deaf, multi-handicapped children. Are you, uh, are you from the South? Is that where you grew up? No, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Oh, really? Yeah, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a degree in uh, special edu- master's in special education. And at that time, people did silly things like going to the South to be teachers. Because they were needed. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you had before a the cynicism sets, sets in, you know. You had a sense of, uh, of, uh, of mission. You, this is, this was, you were going to do good work for people, yeah. for people who needed it. Right. And right. now he's, and he's got this look on his face like right now, like, what a sucker I was. <laughs> well, more like, can you believe that, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> I can. I can believe it. <laughs> well, uh, it's like they say. The most cynical people usually start out as idealists, mm-hmm. I- idealists, yeah. and uh, and then wind up cynics when they find out the world really sucks. <laughs> what, what what was life like in Pittsburgh growing up? Did you like it there? I loved it. It was uh, that was back in the still days. So we had the thing with uh, soot coming down on your clothes during the day, and the sky lit up with the with the red from all the blast furnaces. And it was the very ethnic Pittsburgh with every neighborhood was a different ethnicity, mm-hmm. great food, fun. Iron City beer. Iron City beer. And, and old frothing sloss, the pale stale ale with the foam on the bottom. Yeah, when you with the label printed upside yeah. down. <laughs> I said to my friend uh, Jerry James, who's from Elizabeth, Pennsylvania, yeah. I, w- I went to Penn State. This is how I, mm-hmm. how I found out about all of this stuff. I remember driving into Pittsburgh for the first time with Jerry, and this would have been in the 70s. And I said, "What? Why aren't there any trees on any of those mountains?" And he said, "Those aren't mountains; those are slag heaps." <laughs> you idiot! Uh, slag. Explain to people what slag heaps are. In the process of making steel, uh, you get this residue that's left over. It looks like sand. It's full of little, little mineral fibers and things and it's what's scraped off the steel when they purify it before it's poured. And it's it's much like what. You see out by Kennecott now, yeah. the tailings piles, and they pile it up, and then ultimately now, because Pittsburgh is no longer a steel town, it's a corporate, beautiful, wonderful city, I understand. Haven't they, been back? I've been back a few times, and it is it is pretty cool, but I miss that, that sort of edgy, uh, ethnic, uh, blue-collar thing. It's all a bunch of mm-hmm. um, young yeah. uh Professional types now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's slag, and they would just pile it up and leave it there. Yeah, I, I even seem to. Am I wrong? Did I even see some houses on it? And they later, much like um, Daybreak, mm-hmm. piled some topsoil over it and built developments on top of it. So yeah. you don't. I don't even know if you see many of them anymore. Yeah, I don't think so. And then, uh, and then he told me about old frothing sloss. I don't. I don't think they made that beer anymore, but I think it was made by the Iron City Brewery. And, and uh, by the time I was there, they, they didn't make it, but it was a seasonal thing. Christmas. Yeah. And you turned, they printed the label upside down, and the label said, 
the only beer with the foam on the bottom. So if you turned the bottle upside down, the foam was on the bottom. Well, I, well, I said I said to him now. I, he told me about it, and I he said that slogan, the pale stale ale with the foam on the bottom, and I said, "What is is the foam really on the bottom?" And he and he said, "What do you think?" <laughs> This is a great friend of mine. He's a real Pittsburgh. Yeah, I love him. Cause, uh, yeah, cause, what do uh, you think? Great. I remember in Pittsburgh, um, uh, friends of mine who weren't from Pittsburgh, I had a lot of friends from Philadelphia when I went to college. But uh, in Pittsburgh, jag-off was a term of endearment. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine, his girlfriend, referred to him as a jag-off one time. And he was, he was really upset because <laughs> he felt that she was saying something about him masturbating. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. And I said, no. No. No, Pittsburgh girl, she really likes you. Yeah. yeah. That's a good Iron City beer. And that was nasty stuff, really, I thought. I didn't, I didn't care for the Iron City. Well, it was different. And I, it's hard to find now because they went to a, during the age of disco, they went to a icy light, they called it, mm-hmm. because nobody would drink it anymore. But what, really, was the other, what was the other big beer in? Duquesne. Duquesne, yeah. The Prince of Pilsners. Yeah. You yeah. had a picture of a guy with the sash yeah. and everything, yeah. yeah. There, was, there must have been 40 different beers around Pittsburgh. Regional beers, yeah. Yeah, and they're all gone now. So you grow up, you study special education. Yeah. Uh, you went to school in Pittsburgh, in college in Pittsburgh? I or? went to college uh, north of Pittsburgh uh, at a small school in the country called, uh, well, it was a university, but uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I uh, got a master's there in special ed. And then later I went to school in New Mexico in um, television production and documentaries and uh, wound up at a newspaper to learn some basics before I went to, into documentary production. Why did that all happen? Why, why that change? Why did you decide to move from special education and decide to become a documentary filmmaker and then ultimately a journalist and land in Salt Lake City? And, well, wow. I, uh, I taught special ed in, uh, in Panhandle, Georgia for a while, uh, a place called O'Clockney, Georgia, mm. out in the middle of nowhere where we, we were finding kids who needed to be educated uh, but were not in school. Kids and, that would, uh, or kids that did go to school, like, and it's really true with no shoes. And yes, well, yeah, all that kind of. Well, in the South at that time, and I'm sure now, I mean, um, kids don't wear shoes in the summer. It's yeah. it's more cultural thing, but there there was a lot of poverty. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, we would find kids who hadn't been educated because they may have had special education problems or just a a racism thing, and we would dig them out with a myself, a social worker, somebody else, we'd go find them on some farm or something. Then we would test them, find out, you know, what their academic level was, get them in school, get programs for their parents. And it was under, there was a law passed about that time uh, called the Right to an Education Law. And it pushed all this stuff, and federal money was spent to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and then I went to Louisiana uh, and had another job there. Uh, Get a little closer. You're starting. Oh yeah, I, I went to I went to Louisiana and uh, uh, took over a uh, a, a school for last chance kids. Kids who were it was in Baton Rouge. They were just uh, kicked out of the regular schools for for some sort of problem. And if they were found to have some sort of disability, um, they were expelled. But they were given a last chance at our school. Mm-hmm. 
and two suspensions more, and they were gone for good. So we got a lot of behavioral problem kids, but it worked a lot. There were quite a few that we that were lost even to us. But I did that for a while and enjoyed it, and then I got interested in special ed. Um, went to the Louisiana School for the Deaf that's in Baton Rouge in their deaf multi-handicap program and did that for two or three years and frankly i burned out yeah it's just too hard it's heartbreaking and hard and it's just hard were you a were you a, a married man at the time no, no no uh so so you what so what made you decide well i'm gonna stop doing that i mean i'm burned out on that why go to documentary filmmaking and then um ultimately journalism i had always had a love for documentary films and photography, and I had made some documentary films as an undergrad, just shorts and things. And I decided after I burned out on special education, why not, why not try something that I was really interested in? Mm-hmm. So I went to New Mexico State University, and where's the, uh, which show? Uh, it's in Las Cruces, oh, in the sorry. southern part of the state. And I took uh, I I took the major of. Uh, Oh, it was communications major, basically journalism, uh, television production, because I was told at that time that, you know, film was dead and video was the coming thing, uh-huh. which says shows how old I am. <laughs> and uh, I got a degree in that, and I uh, got a lot of experience in that, and this, uh, an advisor said, you know, you can go and work at a small station and hope to work your way through as a writer uh, news director and things, and then get into documentary, which is what I wanted. Or go into a newspaper, the newspaper business, learn about reporting and uh, digging out stories, and then cross back over to documentary. So I did that and just never cross back over. Uh, what you, so you had a love of documentary films. What, um, can you think about it? Think back of uh, the documentary films that you saw growing up or when you were a younger mm-hmm. guy that made you think, God, this is a powerful medium. I, I, this is incredible to me. I want to do this. I like this. Well, there were two uh, things that directly affected me. One, one was, uh, do you remember the film Thin Blue Line? Cop. About cops. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. A, uh, a guy, mur- two guys are involved in the murder of a cop. Right. And a guy gets sent to prison for it. And they later discover, this is in Texas, they later discover that he's innocent. And the film ends when the, the documentary, documentary maker uh, interviews the other guy who was in the car with him. And the guy confesses. Yeah. And so he gets this guy freed. And the film was not only uh, powerful because of the, what it accomplished, but it was beautifully made. It was one of the groundbreaking documentaries with with using not just talking heads and things, but trying, you know, when you have these complicated subjects. And then there was a, a filmmaker in Pittsburgh who lived in the part of Pittsburgh I lived in, which was mining t- um, steel towns that were all in decline. His name was Tony Buba. Uh, and he made these tremendous little documentaries. Uh, if you can get a hold of one, see it. But they were... Uh, they were about life in this little steel town. Are they still available? I don't know where you would find them. I've tried YouTube. in the past searching them. I got, he may be there again because I saw that he got some more recognition in the last year or so. Still making stuff. Yeah. Booba, B-O. B-U-B-A, I believe. Tony. 
and and he made his films about Braddock, uh, Pennsylvania, which mm-hmm. is uh, which is an outlying sort of town around Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. But he made these films just about ordinary people, and they were riveting. And the thing about him was, he had no money at first, so he'd go to the local uh, NPR affiliates kind of station, public station. And they would give him the ends of their 16-millimeter rolls, that what was left over that they hadn't shot uh, when they had news developed and things. And so he'd make his films with that and splice them together. So often the color would change because he'd go from, you know, Fujichrome yeah. to Kodachrome or whatever. But he would make, was making his films that way. And he met, um, oh, the great German film, oh, Werner Herzog. He met Werner Herzog and was showing his at some festival, and he was showing his films, and Werner came up to him and told him that he loved his films and that he had to continue making them. And Buba said, well, you know, if I get a grant or something, sure I will. And Herzog said, you must kill, murder, kidnap if necessary to make your films. (laughs) And Buba said, "Uh, you know, Thanks, Werner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, so uh, you you went to uh, you were going to make documentary films. You went to work for a newspaper in New Mexico. Yes, um, and never really went back to the no. documentary films. No, I traveled around the country working for newspapers. I went from New Mexico to Southern Idaho. I went from there to Minneapolis, St. Paul. Worked on then I got involved in alternative. Oh, and I also worked in Spokane for the associate, for not the associate, United Press International. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Minneapolis, worked for the AP for a while, but part-time, and also worked for an alternative newspaper, when alternatives were all that. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Dallas, got a job with the Dallas Observer, which was one of the, you know, top alternative papers, kneecapper paper, and um, then... From there, uh, wound up back in Salt Lake City for the Tribune. So you, you really you liked doing it. You, you loved Oh, I worked for the Deseret News for a short period at one point. Really? Yeah, I can hardly put those dots together anymore. Uh, I didn't know about Utah. I was... <laughs> when, when did you first come to Utah? Oh, mid-80s. And why did you come here because you got a job here? Deseret News. Um, uh, talk about that a little bit. Uh, so you, you came uh, here, you, you were just looking for another job that was a little bit better than the one you had. Exactly. I mean, it's probably similar to your profession. You keep taking these steps. You stay mm-hmm. nine months, a year and a half at any place and go for the next bigger job. Try to work your way up to a bigger mm-hmm. paper, a little bit more money. Yep, a little, and a little bit, you know... Um, you don't get in newspapers if you want to just make money. Right. You got you got a sort of ridiculous passion for finding the truth or whatever that just sounds so pompous and idiotic later, but you do. Yeah. And so, so uh, what was it about the Deseret News that made you say, "I'm going to I'm going to take that job"? I was in uh, Idaho at the time, and they Deseret News was placing ads for journalists. And they were pitching themselves at that point, and it was sincere. They wanted to be the Christian Science Monitor of the West, mm-hmm. you know, owned by a church, but dedicated to good journalism with a couple of sacred cows of, you know, whatever the religious was thing was. And I came down and I talked to uh, Bill Smart, who was the executive editor. Then. I remember that guy. Yeah. yeah. And he 
gave me a very compelling case about what he was trying to do. And at that time, half the staff at the Deseret News was non-Mormon. Mm-hmm. And they were really trying to do this thing. They were doing a lot of investigative journalism, a lot of digging, and um, that lasted. So I came down, took the job, and I had we had that was in the '83 when we had all the disasters, all the flooding, flooding, yeah, all the earthquakes. So we came down, and I did that, and it was really exciting, exhilarating, couple of years, and it was going great. And then from on high, all of that. Uh, investigative journalism, hardcore uh, work was rolled back by uh, by actually one of the leaders on rolling it back was Thomas Monson. He was the he was a general authority in charge of media at that time, and I had written a story about AIDS in Utah mm-hmm. uh, for the paper, a large story, and he killed it. Uh, no, you know that. Yeah, absolutely. He- yeah. Yeah, they told me because everybody had supported me mm-hmm. in the structure at the at the Deseret News up the publisher, and then somebody ran it across the street to the uh, to, or up the street to the church office building, and it was killed. It um, I think what what I understood it, the the big problem to be was uh, a big part of the story was about how individual wards were sort of taking in Mormons with AIDS who were returning from. Chicago, New York, San mm-hmm. Francisco, to, to be with their families because it was a death sentence in those days. Yeah. So they'd come home, and then their families knew if the church knew they were gay, they'd be excommunicated. And these were very staunch Mormons, so they would have sort of a don't ask, don't tell thing with their bishops. Mm-hmm. And each of these wards really didn't know anybody else was doing that. But they would sort of gather around these families, cut their lawns, leave food, and you know, casseroles for them on the doorstep, knowing they were going through an incredibly difficult time. And I was told that uh, the church hierarchy didn't want that story of, def- they perceived it as defiance by individual wards. So they killed the story. Now, I, I seem to remember something about this. Uh, it It came out that the story had been killed. It became general knowledge somehow. How, how did it become general knowledge, and what, what happened with it? Well, um, I was extremely upset, and I asked, you know, is there some way I can recut this that it would be acceptable? And they said no. So uh, I said, well, you know, these people were in pain, all these Mormons with their children. And I interviewed them, and they spoke to me openly, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know what they're feeling. This story has to be printed somewhere. So I'm going to take it somewhere else. And I was told, no, if you do that, that's a firing offense. And I said, and it was one of those, you can't fire me, I quit. No, you can't quit, I fire you. And, you know, I wound up out the door. Mm -hmm. So I went to United Press International. And, of course, by that time, through the journalism community, the story had spread. And, in fact, they had a uh, ombuds uh, person at the Deseret News then, who was, of course, you know, a harnessed person. And he wrote a a column about how it wasn't censorship. It was merely editing to stop the story. It was an editing 
uh, question, well, and you didn't agree with their editing. Right, 100% editing of my story yeah. out of existence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just wanted to edit uh, from the uh, beginning letter of the story to yeah. the last period. Right, That's from all the drop yeah. cap to the last period, yeah. yeah. So I went to UPI, got a job at UPI in Salt Lake City, and... Um, my, um, and they ran the story? Well, my managing, uh, what, are, what are they called, uh, managing editor, I believe is what it's called at UPI, heard about it and said, you know, what about that story you did for the Deseret News? Would you want to do it for us? And I said, well, you know, a little uncomfortable. But so I went back and I called everybody I'd interviewed and I explained to them that the story was killed by the Deseret News, but I wanted it to get out. And UPI had agreed that they would run with it and all but i think two of them said do it Interesting. so i uh i did it is it just talking about the ethics of journalism here for a second Mm -hmm. did you have to do that as a to be an ethical journalist or did you think you had to do that as an ethical person or both um i felt i had to do it as a as an ethical person, but, um, and I would have never backed over any of those people in any case. But as far as me taking the story to somebody else, as far as the Deseret News was concerned, Mm -hmm. I didn't have to get to that level, but Mm -hmm. it, um, I felt it was, you know, it was sort of one of those, does the, does the greater good outweigh, uh, professional or organizational ethics of, they had I had done it as one of their reporters, yeah. and they owned my intellectual property, uh, yeah. and so they could stop it. But I felt that this was too important of a story. Too many people were in absolute agony of grief yeah. and things. So I took it, and I called the individual people and said, can I do it? I didn't call the Deseret News and ask them. That is, yeah, I, I, that is the other part of that. They, they owned that story. Absolutely true. Yeah, you, you. So you committed an act of theft, essentially, by taking it in theft of intellectual property yeah. that was, in effect, my own. Yet yeah. it was theirs. And but one could say I re-interviewed most of those people. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, went back through it with mm-hmm. them. Yeah. So was it a fresh new story? I mean, it's splitting hairs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Technically, so, they owned it. So UPI runs it. Um, it gets picked up. Um, did the, did the Trib run it? No. no they did not. Um, Deseret News wouldn't run it, obviously. Mm. The Tribune wouldn't run it. And this is one of the things that comes up with this joint operating agreement. At that time, the, the Deseret News and Tribune not only have this deal where they share advertising yeah. and dis- distribution and printing, but they wouldn't um, uh, crap on each other. You know, if if one of them had some sort of internal thing that came out... The other paper wouldn't report in those days that. So the Tribune didn't report what happened yeah. with the story originally, and they didn't and they didn't um, pick it up, mm-hmm. and the Deseret News didn't pick it up, but virtually every other paper from Ogden to St. George picked it up from UPI and ran it. And, it, you know, I got these clippings sent to me from Bangkok <laughs> and Singapore, you know, we used to joke at UPI, was like when we had a slow week and weren't getting a lot of national stories out, 
just dig up a polygamy story or some sort of Mormon oddball yeah. thing and throw it on the wire. And it, you know, being you, there was a way in those days you'd see it just moving through the system like ripples. What, uh, what about um, uh, electronic media? Did they did they do something with it? No, I don't recall. Mm. I actually don't recall because. Um, UPI at that point, we had some radio stations, and I don't think they would have done it. I don't know if we had any television stations at that time. Mm-hmm. So uh, you stayed, uh, so, and you, uh, so you became sort of a celebrity? Very small. See, uh, within, the, within the world of, of journalists, and this, you know, which makes too much of itself as it is, you know what I mean? Oh, uh, I do know what you mean, but it is, uh, at the same time, it maybe doesn't make enough of itself. But I know every, one, every few months you'll see the, um, in, the, in the Tribune and in the Deseret News, uh, there have been some journalism awards. Jesus. <coughs> banquet. <laughs> and uh, our reporters won these awards for this reporting. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. Best feature written on a Tuesday on recyclable paper. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. The Rocky Mountain Journalism yeah. Awards. Most uh, of us dropped out of that after a while because it was, it's really a way to raise funds for SBJ to give scholarships to create more journalists that we yeah. don't need. So it sort of became kind of funny. Um, uh, so, were, th- were there any ripples at all when you after you, when you ran that story with the UPI? The, were there was it bad for you? Good for you? It was good for me. I got everybody who saw it. I, I got I heard from families who said that it it sort of you know it put their story out there. Uh, these were Mormon families who had felt that they were sort of uh, lepers or something. You know, and they realized, you know, we're not the only ones. I mean, as crazy as that sounds, in the 80s, in a lot of Mormon families, I interviewed the wives of gay men who ultimate gay Mormon men who ultimately left their wives and and, you know, moved to San Francisco or something. And the denial was so powerful in that community that, you know, you would see people that were just very obviously gay sure and the and they would it wouldn't even cross their minds yeah I, no it doesn't sound crazy because i i've known them i knew them and it doesn't sound crazy in light of what happens today with kids you know who you know try to deny their sexuality and you know it still happens today well and of course part of my story had the electrical shock treatments that were in it and suicides um um, a um, stake president in the Utah County, you know, confided and not confided, told me on the record that you know he had he had counseled, as he was told by the church, people that came to him, men that came to him and said they were gay. He counseled them to find a good woman, and he would forgive them and anoint them, and mm-hmm. they would get married. And then one of them killed himself yeah. with a shotgun. You know, six months after getting married, and he just he said, "There's got to be some other way to deal with this." And um, yeah, I mean, I read that. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, it's still surprising to me. I read that uh, editorial or that commentary piece in the Tribune this past Sunday from that guy who's now an attorney in Alabama, but he talked about the conversion therapy that he went through at BYU. And it said that, you know, having his penis put in a, a, a metal device and 
and shocked. And I'm well. I knew that there was conversion therapy. I didn't realize it. To what lengths it went to. Well, yeah, they had to measure if he was getting aroused. I think that's what that was for. Yeah. And then they had electric shocks that were given to him or something because yeah. they had burned legs from it. Yeah. But, you know, it's, I mean, if you didn't know better, you would think it was a Monty Python skit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, so you, you, you make a name for yourself in, in Salt Lake, but you move on. You go somewhere else. Yeah. Where'd you go? I went to Spokane for UPI mm-hmm. and uh, ran a, a one-person bureau there. And uh, and then you moved on from there? Right. And then I, uh, uh, my wife, I was married by then, and my wife, Holly Mullen, uh, accepted a job at the Pioneer Press. She's also a journalist. Accepted a job at the Pioneer Press in the Twin Cities, and um, we kind of were doing this your turn to move, my turn to move kind of thing. So we got there, and uh, I wound up working for part-time for the AP, and then I went to uh, a uh, small alternative newspaper, you know, weekly, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. like City Weekly mm-hmm. on the same lines. Did you like that. writing for those kind of? Yeah, I did, because like every journalist at the time, and probably most journalists now, uh, Hunter S. Thompson was a hero. You know, mm-hmm. and that's the place you could write gonzo journalism. In fact, it was probably abused by most people. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to be somebody really special and somebody really good to kind of pull that shit off, don't you? You have to be an excellent writer yeah. or a really excellent investigator. And you find, you know, it's like the first person writing mm-hmm. things first person, which is a lot of that, the new journalism, they called mm-hmm. it then. But... It's the most powerful form, first person. It's the most abused and silly, too. Yeah. And it's a thin line to falling one way or another with, you know, confessional things or, in the case of Hunter S. Thompson, that you're abusing drugs while you're <laughs> on the story, which, which was absolutely fantastic journalism. But he was, like, the only person who could pull that yeah. off. Yeah, and I, I wonder how much... Although I guess I heard, I guess I've talked to or read people who were with him who, I mean, there was no question that he did a lot of that stuff Mm -hmm. when he was just, you know, hanging out. But I think, I guess I talked to people, not talked to people, but read people who were with him when he was writing and drinking and and yeah. doing that as well. So reportedly he really did it. You know? I don't know how when he had surgery, I read about a recent, uh, what do they call it? Uh, Oh, sort of a word of mouth biography where they talked to all of his mm-hmm. friends that his doctor had to give him an, um, an alcohol IV when he went on, underwent surgery because he could go into the shock of the DTs oh, yeah. on recovery. And that would kill him if the surgery didn't. Huh. So um, you, what did you think about um, your this? So your first experience in Salt Lake, you come to Salt Lake City, and uh, I, I would assume you have very little experience with Mormons. Some up in Idaho, but you know, and you come and you you have this experience working for the Mormon Church-owned paper, and um, you know, you come here, you try to experience the community and uh, understand the community. What did you think about that whole situation when, when you left? Well, it's uh, given me a, a fund of good stories, for one thing. But um, when I came, I, I really, Idaho Mormons aren't a whole lot like Utah yeah, Mormons. That's, and I came down here. They're and, a little more, um, 
just correct me if I'm wrong, but I've spent some time in Idaho. My ex-wife's, Dylan's mother's family, Idahoans, and we used to go up there quite a bit. Uh, kind of a, a more down-to-earth and a little bit more just, you know. Yeah. You know, they, except if, if you're going to have a drink, have a drink. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's fine. Farmers would say, I'd see them, yeah. I'd see them in, a, in a bar out by Buell somewhere, sitting in a little bar having a beer at the end of the day. And, and they would say, mm-hmm. you know. I don't think the Lord's going to hold a cold beer against me, you yeah. know, after what I did out in the field today. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. And then I moved down here, and you can ask any Mormon. Being in, in Utah is a tough place to be a Mormon, yeah. even. Mormons from other parts of the country. So I came here, and I was just blown away about it. I, I knew a little of the history of Mormons, and I read quite a bit about the history of them. But things like garments mm-hmm. just blew my mind. And you have to realize, uh, besides being a, basically a, a genetic smartass, I was from Pittsburgh, where every religion in the world is there. And you have a synagogue on one street corner, a Catholic cathedral on the other street corner, a Methodist church, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and all we did was make fun of each other. Mm-hmm. And I come out here and I started joking about Mormons and I yeah. found out they don't they don't have a culture of humor. Now you don't want to do too much of that. No. Well yeah. I actually did a story on human religion for the Deseret News and it was fascinating mm. on why Jews tell such great jokes, you know, yeah. and, and Mormons don't. You know, and <laughs> my next door neighbor uh, is Jewish and and she loves that, you know, the old Jews telling jokes. She just she just loves that. She's just the greatest. So so you you uh, you're here the, and and uh, you end up marrying Holly Mullen, who's mm-hmm. also in the newspaper business. Yes, she was at the Tribune when I was, and uh, and also no, she's from here, I think, isn't she? She is. Yeah, yeah. she grew up in in Salt Lake City. Yeah, knew the cult, so she knows the culture. You guys end up both end up back here. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, we came back in the uh, late 90s, right before the Olympics. And started working both at the Salt Lake Tribune? Both at the Tribune, again. Yeah. And uh, she um, she became the sports editor during the Olympics. Sports editor, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, Jay Shelley, who was in charge then, um, kind of, you know, he... For all of his faults, Jay really cared about the news business, the news... And he was always pushing on that mm-hmm. and uh, pushing for stories and things. But, you know. Was it a good time to work at the Tribune? It was a pretty good time. Um, there was a lot going on. I, I personally felt that the, that the Tribune had a inflated. You know, I had worked in Dallas and Minneapolis and some other places. And I felt. The Tribune always had an inflated sense of its self-worth, you know, or of its value mm-hmm. as a journalism machine. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there were some people doing some very good stuff, and there yeah. still is. I wouldn't take anything away from the political well, team. Yeah. yeah, there's some good, there's still some very good writers at the Tribune. Yeah. What do you, let's talk a little bit about what what's happened to the Salt Lake Tribune and the Deseret News and to journalism in general, um, I mean, they're a special case in a lot of ways, but in a way they're a victim of what's happened to journalism, newspaper journalism in general. Well, in any any news story, any uh, trend event or anything, Utah 
is a special case. <laughs> uh, just Utah is sort of like hyper America in a way. You know, the, uh, the idea that uh, you can make what you want of yourself is magnified by the, by the multi-level uh, marketing and everything, mm-hmm. you know, and patriotism in a weird way seems to be magnified uh, here in some ways. And, you know, that co- conflation of God and the founding fathers and, you know, yeah. so, so when the trend came, trend came through on journalism with the rise of the information, uh, digital information world, uh, the whole journalism model was screwed, mm. particularly newspapers around the country. But here we had this weird op- joint operating agreement, which was obviously driven by uh, money, uh, that brought the Tribune a traditionally or historically anti-Mormon publication and the Deseret News a church-owned publication together to make money by printing together. And then the newsrooms were technically separated. So the joint operating agreement said, look, we can, we can make, save money and make, thereby make more money if we get rid of, we're duplicating printing presses here. Deseret News is printing in the morn, you know, for a morning paper at the time. Uh, the Tribune yes. is uh, printing, or I mean, excuse me, an evening paper. Yes. And the Tribune is a morning paper. So why don't we just use the same printing? Yes, and there's a little more than that. The the law that allows you to create a monopoly, which is what the joint operating agreement law is all about, came about in other cities and here because one of the papers was in threat of failing. The Deseret News. At that time, which is ironic since the Tribune's the one, you know, that's in trouble now. But the, um, the government, the Justice Department, Made a made a decision that preserving two voices at least in a city was worth uh, bending um, antitrust laws. So they did. So what they did was technically you combine everything except the newsrooms, right? Circulation, advertising, sales, uh, you name it. Printing everything. Printing, yeah. yeah printing trucks, yeah. So it is, it's ironic that the Justice Department would do that, but isn't that the same argument that they can use now? It's what the Trib is trying to say now. You can't let us go under. The Justice Department, they're trying to say to the Justice Department, we can't go under. How is it that the Deseret News managed to screw them into a 60-40 agreement? Now they get 64% of the profits, and the Trib gets 40% of the profits. How? How did that happen? It happened because the former owners of the Tribune, the McCarthys, got greedy when they sold their cable network that the Tribune was part of. Mm-hmm. And they, as I, as I understood it, and happened to, I happened to have covered a lot of this when it went down, when they changed hands with the Singleton regime, but uh, they felt, they were told by their tax attorneys that they could sell this off, then AT&T, who bought the cable, spun it off, and they believed that they could buy it back because there would be nobody else interested and save a bunch of taxes by doing it that way, which is way beyond my pay grade in legal tax law. Uh, So when they tried that, they didn't realize that this shark from Texas, Dean Singleton, 
was going to be in the tank with them in the church. Swoop in. Yeah. And the church was very... Swim in, I guess. The church was very annoyed with uh, the Tribune in those days because of some stories the Tribune did on the Mount Meadow Massacre archaeological dig Mm. and uh, on um, the Main Street uh, Plaza. Oh, yeah. Rocky Anderson. The Trib dug it. Yes, it was... uh, um, a couple of reporters dug deeply into that and found that, uh, yeah, it wasn't a pretty, it didn't go down in a very pretty democratic way. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they were unhappy with them. They were unhappy with probably Raleigh and a few other people. So Singleton came in and said, look, sell it to me and, and I will not let this paper beat up on you. And they did. Mm. So when he got the paper, he came in and gave us a speech that we would no longer, he felt that that was bias attacking the Mormon church. And we tried to explain to him it's more than a church, it's a legislature, it's the entire culture system, it's the financial system, it's the economy, it's the man. It's the, the man, it's yeah. the establishment. Right. And somebody has to be the watchdog on that. And he said, no, you know, we will watchdog these things, but we will not. You know, mm-hmm. go after the Mormon Church as a group or a culture group, mm-hmm. and um, and for a few years that was held very closely uh, in place by uh, by his um, the publisher or editor. She was editor. called editor. Mm-hmm. That, did he put in? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, the bird watcher. What was her name? Nancy Conway. Nancy Conway. Yeah. I, is she a bird watcher? I am too. Yeah, so, she was a bird. So watcher. don't beat up on her for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember that about her. She made a big deal about the fact that she loved birds and was a bird watcher. Really? Yeah. Anyway, she um, she basically was just carried out what Dean said to mm-hmm. do, and mm-hmm. and so we had quite a few stories that were sort of turned away if they were seen as being too much about the Mormon Church instead of something else. And and while this is all going on too, of course, journalism is. Newspapers in general are just trying to figure out how to stay alive anyway. That's right. Is uh, and will they stay alive? Oh, I think they will in in some form at least. Um, uh, The large papers that are have really embraced uh, the digital future, as they say, uh, do some wonderful stuff. New York Times is an obvious example. A lot of other publications, and then a lot of smaller papers like under. 40,000 circulation that serve a, a community that doesn't have competition in other ways uh, do very well. Lo- reporting on local issues, yes. you mean? And- yeah, local issues with a little bit of national. Uh, people feel attached to them, and they also are delivering what people want. Mm-hmm. The Tribune falls in that category where our our market's a little too big um, and, you know, and it just it's just an awkward size, yeah. so it's uh, it's in trouble like papers like that across the country. And one of the problems that Trib has is that I don't think they they for various reasons they still haven't gotten it about about make turning making that turn towards digital. They still they still you know their website is a mess yeah, yeah. and their their app is not much better and and you know how can you do now part of that they have no control over because they're owned by basically pawnbrokers in new york you mm-hmm. know yeah. who who don't want to spend the money and are trying to peddle it um you know without 
spending any more money. I mean, it's the Tribs become sort of like a like one of those beat up used cars. Yeah, and you know you can't sell it without putting a new transmission in it, but. You know, are you going to give it to the Kidney Foundation, i.e. Huntsman, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, well, the, so Huntsman, it was rumored that he, he was going to buy it, and and then all of a sudden that just stopped. And and uh, the story is is that the, the Mormon church said, no, no, you're not. Because they have veto power over any buyer, apparently. Under the joint operating agreement. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, they can say no to any buyer. And they said, no, we're not going to, uh, no, we, we don't right. want to sell it to John Huntsman Sr., and there, there were all kinds of rumors about that. Well, it's because of uh, he uh, he he uh, said bad things about Mitt Romney. Don't, he didn't like Mitt Romney, but they've kind of patched things up since since Mitt stopped running for president. And you know, and uh, but but maybe that was it. But but not, you know what I think is that they're they're going to say no to anybody because they don't want the Salt Lake Tribune around at all yeah, anymore. I, I think that's a that's a good speculation. Um, I think one. I think that Huntsman Senior would probably have been the best hope for the Tribune because he is a he's a good Mormon, a powerful Mormon, respected Mormon, and um, the church would have felt they could trust this formerly troublesome newspaper with him, and um, he was going to bring in, <laughs> which is absolutely the craziest thing I heard. I had heard that he was going to bring Singleton in to run it for him. And Singleton's the guy that got them where they are, yeah. you know, by using them as collateral to buy other loser mm-hmm. papers. So anyway, uh, I think that that was their best hope. So it kind of, uh, I kind of find a little frightening where this might go. Because my problem with that deal, as I had heard it, was that, you know, Huntsman would be a good Mormon. And, um, and not only that, as a businessman, he'd be basically a chamber of commerce owning Owning it, so you wouldn't see investigative stories into, mm-hmm. you know, certain business scams and things. You know, in fact, Huntsman hated the Tribune for a while, at least, when they did a story on how his industries were producing cancer in Texas, yeah. while he cured it in Utah, which is a hell of a business model if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, because and the he was uh, he made his monies in uh, creating. Uh, the styrofoam containers, yes, clamshells, clamshells for McDonald's mm-hmm. and places like that, which is and the byproducts of all of that is cancer causing stuff and uh, uh, presumably or, uh, well, or reportedly, uh, yeah, I guess allegedly it is, uh, mm-hmm. but it is interesting to me that uh, he's he's divested himself of all of that, yes, and uh, and has devoted himself entirely. Curing cancer with the billions he made well, with that previous well, business, you know, you know, and but uh, there, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, you got to say that either he, it's, it's from a sense of, wait, what have I done, <laughs> or, or it was a, it was a, it was a brilliant scheme all along, <laughs> you know, who knows? Um, no, yeah, I think he, I think he believes in his own righteousness, mm-hmm. uh, as most people. Of, of that level of wealth and mm. religious persuasion do mm. you know god god blesses you for being righteous so if you're rich obviously you're also righteous so what happened to you at the salt lake tribune um actually as far as i know um they were riffing people uh, you know um laying off people just laid off and uh, i was in one of the rounds of being laid off but i think 
some things put you in the category of being, you know, they obviously made choices on who they were going to lay off. And uh, I was one of the people that uh, they would prefer not to be there. Mm. It makes too much noise. Glenn Wartall makes too damn much noise. Well, actually, literally, I made too much noise in some ways for people. But, yeah, that happened. And, there, you know, there was a thing that uh, in all these all these uh, commentaries and discussions of the Tribune survival that doesn't come up. And that's how, frankly, poorly managed it is now and has been to get it to this point. You know what I mean? Uh, they're not streamlining down to a solid, hardcore team. They're doing it bits and pieces, and, and there's a lot of cronyism going on and favoritism going on, which isn't doing that paper any favors in the long run. You know, I, it, at the same time, I, you know, just, again, this past Sunday's Salt Lake Tribune, I, you know, I read the, the opinion page, and I read uh, co- uh, you know, commentary from this lawyer guy, ex-Mormon guy from um, uh, Alabama, I think it is. I read Lance Allred, a piece that he wrote mm-hmm. uh, in there that's, that's very uh, moving about his trials and tribulations as a, um, a growing up a, ki- a kid in the Mormon church with, you know, deaf and trying to play basketball and, you know, that whole story. I read the, from the editorial board a, a criticism of a Margaret Dayton uh, and uh, uh, what's his name, Curtis, uh, Greg Curtis, I think, in, in Provo and Orem. They're trying to defund Planned Parenthood, and we wish we could get rid of Planned Parenthood altogether to protect the most vulnerable among us. And the Salt Lake Tribune says, if you want to protect the most vulnerable among us, you know, clean up the air around here. Uh, let's uh, fund Planned Parenthood. You know, let's, uh, you know so there are some, some good, solid liberal stands there and uh, you you know you say you obviously equate good and liberal but beyond that i, I mean i agree with everything you're saying yeah when, if if the, if that if if that paper goes away that you know who takes up that standard who, I, who takes up that banner i absolutely agree with you and my and this is well, a lot of people have uh, trouble understanding is uh, we need those things that the Tribune does and has done and has done in some cases very well, including Robert Gerke's coverage and their political staff's coverage led by, you know, to a long for a long time by Dan Harry. Mm -hmm. And then you have the people on the editorial editorial board or the editorial writers who write well and write strongly about issues. Mm -hmm. We need all that. I guess my argument is I'm talking about not writing, not ideas. I'm talking about managers, which often are more important to a newspaper's yeah. survival than just what you write. And I feel that, uh, that that needs to be adjusted and repaired so that this important voice, the Tribune, continues. Because, yes, something else would have to fill it. And I don't know. One of the problems people have is that anybody as you well know, and as I know, can be a gas bag on issues. And you read what the do you newspaper. mean, as I well know? <laughs> <laughs> Let me explain for 45 minutes to you why you're wrong. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, you know, you read the paper and you go, you know, you rant, mm-hmm. and, which is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing that you need that people don't understand, it's very expensive. 
is people yeah. that go to the meetings, listen, not just investigative readers, people who, but people who cover beats, auger in, un- turn this information up. If it was, if it was just up to uh, people, um, you know, speculating and uh, writing their opinions, well, you don't know the dirt because somebody has to do the spade work, and yeah. that's expensive. You're yep. paying somebody. Well, it's it's pretty pretty ludicrous what they're paid now, probably in the low thirty thousands. But to um, to go and care and be passionate enough to go to city council meetings to look through the budget to find that goofy line item to ask the question about it and and a lot of people have a problem with it. And the Deseret News has turned its back on this. Is you have to have a negative view of life to a certain extent. You know, when you see a highway being built for $5 billion, you have to be the kind of person that says, boy, that much money sloshing around. Somebody's putting it in their pockets. Mm -hmm. And that's seen in this culture, to a large part, as being a negative person of looking for, for bad instead of looking for good. But it is what journalism is. Why do you always have to be looking for the bad in things? Well, somebody has to. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It always, it always bugs me when I hear, like, people on Facebook bitch about this, and they say, you know, here's, thank, here's a news story that's positive. Here's, I'm, so, I'm just so sick of the news being negative all the it's time. It's always positive. Like they, like, yeah. like they say, like the news people say, let's just do print negative stories today. Or like, <laughs> why, well, that's what they do. They're supposed to tell you when bad things are happening. Well, but, but the other thing, when I, I blogged for... I think three years for the Tribune and just wrote crazy shit. And uh, uh, one of the things that I used to do is monthly when they would put out the list of the hits that they got online, Mm -hmm. I put out the top 10. And this is the public, presumably's needs and wants because it's what they went to. And it was if you had a teacher that had sex with a student, particularly if it was a woman teacher and a male student, the numbers went off the boards. That was number one. And then some child molestation mm-hmm. and just all this negative news that people didn't want, mm-hmm. they were doing. And where this got to be a problem was back under the Shelley regime in journalism in, gen- in general, you didn't, you didn't report every shooting, stabbing, mugging, rape, because it makes any city look like Detroit. You know, if you get up in the morning and read mm-hmm. your paper and you have a long list of all these crimes. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a trend of them and there's some discussion about why or mm-hmm. what can be done, yes. But you just – and now the Tribune, because that drives hits. If you open a Tribune up, the top story might be from the night before might be um, Jesus returns to earth. But it gets pushed down. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you wake up, you look and you see that there was mm-hmm. a there was a teacher having sex with a student. Yeah. And that's all at the top then, yeah. you know. Oh, but could you imagine if Jesus returned and then shot somebody? That would be <laughs> yeah. that would be the best headline <laughs> <Yeah>. ever. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> returns to earth to take on vengeance. Spree. <laughs> what uh, was that old T-shirt? Yeah. Jesus is coming and is he pissed? Yeah. What was it? <laughs> yeah. What was the old Kosdazakis, uh, the the. Last temptation of Christ, and this is the the universe is a tree with rotten roots, and the Messiah is coming with an axe. <laughs> um, so, um, so you there, well, there was one other 
it keeps rolling around in my mind. There was at one point that the Salt Lake Tribune, I remember the employees were really happy because they got some big stock bonus or something like that. Okay, that was before, right before I arrived. Oh, sorry. Okay, what, <laughs> yeah, I am too. But what happened was, um, it, it's kind of a fascinating story because it was driven by the flip-flop in, in the digital world. But um, the Tribune bought... Year billions of years ago, they bought a little cable network in Salt Lake City, and the Tribune was the big six hundred pound, you know, money and influence wise. Yeah. And they bought this little cable network because it was the newest thing, cable. Yeah. Well, after a decade or two, the cable network dwarfed the Tribune in value. So AT and T came along. Okay, and then parallel to oh, this, the Tribune right. Tribune employees were offered stock options. So then the AT&T came along and they wanted that that cable network. Yeah. So they bought the cape they bought the Tribune cable network and all the employees became many of them became literally millionaires. A lot of them made a lot of money. And then that's about the time I came on. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, when I came on everybody was always watching the stock market on their computer tubes, you mm-hmm. know. And then I went in, uh, and then a couple years later, this was the this was the high point of working for the Tribune because we were owned by AT and T, a huge yeah. faceless corporation that that because of the Communication Workers of America, God bless them, we had great benefits for once. You were actually union members a little bit, or just no, we weren't. We, we just because, had the good insurance, right? Because we were in Utah, we didn't have to join the union, mm-hmm. but because of the Communication Workers of the their their agreements mm-hmm. we got dragged in and mm-hmm. we got these beautiful benefits well. and that lasted about two years and then it was sort of like the AT&T opened their glove box and found this newspaper and one of their bean counters said who's using all this ink yeah. and the next thing you know they spun us off and Singleton walked in what was, what was uh, the cable network? AT&T well oh you mean the little tiny one that they bought yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, the it reason may have been, it may have been Tribune cable. I I'm think not it was. Sure. I think it's what so it, was it was called. So it's nothing anymore. No, no, no it was just, just sucked into the giant octopus. You know, mm-hmm. and gone. It's you know, sent. What is it now? CenturyLink or yeah, it's yeah. all part of CenturyLink now. Or, I think or something with Xfinity. I think it's yeah, my Xfinity. neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, it's Xfinity. Uh, so anyway, uh, Glenn, now you work for um, Salt Lake Magazine. Correct. Is that what you did immediately after the Tribune, or did you go away for a while? I, kick around I bounced around for a couple of months, and then my my wife, my current wife, as I like to say. <laughs> Mary Maloof. Mary, Mary Brown Maloof. I, that's what I always say. I, I, say my, my, I say my new wife and my old wife. <laughs> well, I, I think current shows that I can, it still may change. Yeah, it might move on at any time. <laughs> anyway. You used to say my current wife and... and uh, mm-hmm. Your wife got mad at you and said, "Would you stop saying?" Yes, you, yeah, my, my 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 wife that I am your married to now, my new wife, <laughs> says, "Stop calling me your current wife. It sounds like you're going to move on." Okay, you're my new wife. <laughs> anyway, Mary was working as the um, food editor, food and dining editor for Salt Lake Magazine at that time. So, through her power at the magazine, which has like five editorial, you know positions um i got some freelance 
and I worked freelance for a while. That was when uh, uh, Mar- Marcy Cancio uh, was editor, mm-hmm. and Marcy hired me on as a contract writer, and then um, she left, and a couple of people left, and they re re um, organized mm-hmm. the the editorial staff and Mary became executive editor and I'm managing editor and we've just hired a new, um, uh, associate editor. You like working for the magazine? I do. I do. Uh, you know, working for any family organization has its trials, Mm -hmm. but, um, we do some fun stuff. Uh, it's not the kind of work that, uh, investigative journalism, although we do a little of that. Yeah. But um, it's a good-looking magazine. Oh, you thank have to you. Say that. But we're a lifestyle magazine. We're yeah. we're for that. We're about uh, beauty and fashion, and uh, and basically we cover the culture. We try mm-hmm. to give a snapshot of Salt Lake culture, which allows us to do some fun stuff mm-hmm. with with the culture, the yeah. Mormon culture, mm-hmm. in fact. And you can and you can write. Um, not a, maybe not investigative pieces, but I know you're doing a piece. Uh, can we say what that piece yeah. is that you just yeah. finished about the DABC, yes. the Division of Alcohol and Beverage Control? And I assume you're looking into how it works and what they do exactly. Yes. Into their, they're having a hell of a time right now, a lot of controversy, yeah. a lot of problems. And, uh, and as you know, again, th- these are the stories I love because it's mm-hmm. sort of a, uh, anthropolo- you know, it, yeah. it's sort of anthropology and sociology because – you know, Utah's liquor issues are like nowhere else yep. because of our, our, our legislature and our over, mm-hmm. you know, our dominating mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. You know, where it isn't just about money and uh, and the dangers of mm-hmm. drunk drivers; it's also a moral issue, mm-hmm. and uh, all these things go together. Yeah, I always I always uh, find it interesting that they don't that the legislature doesn't trust. themselves enough does not trust the culture enough to say to realize that it's not the stupid little laws they pass about liquor that keeps the statistics about drunk driving lower here than they are elsewhere and the um, rates of alcoholism are lower I believe statistically here than they are elsewhere it's not the stupid little niggling laws that they pass about Zion curtains and all of that. It's because the predominant culture teaches their children well about drinking and either to not do it or if they end up doing it, they do it pretty responsibly. Um, it's not what the, the dumb laws the legislature passes. But they think they're doing, they're doing that great work up there on the yeah. hill. I just, they just drive me crazy. Well, there's a, there's another mythology about it that that uh, that Mormon kids either don't drink or they go nuts when they start drinking. Right. And I, and I don't know if either of those have any statistical they, basis to no. them, you know. But you always hear that stuff, and it's a it's a problem. And people take it as the truth rather than right. uh, you know, like. Uh, like Muslims cheering for the bombing of the, or the crashes in the 9-11. In Jersey City. Yeah. yeah. Never happened. Never happened. But Donald <laughs> Trump, he saw it. Yeah, and everybody who heard him saw it. So what do you, um, do you have somewhere in you as well this uh, um, great American novel or uh, do you, have you, have you written, do you write on something else? Do you work on something else? Do you? Um, you know, um, I 
I've been encouraged to write novels of various levels of things from, you know, uh, mystery novels and things. I, the problem one has as a, as a journalist is you need almost to quit to do that because, because you get so your writing skills are so fried. I mean, and I know this is the same at the Tribune, uh, the same at the TV stations, when you're a journalist these days in particular, when you're tweeting, when you're Instagramming, when you're writing, when you're, when you're marketing, when you're working on larger concepts and things, you're exhausted. And the last thing you want to do is go home, you know, and light a candle, pour yourself a shot of bourbon and start writing that novel. Mm-hmm. So I have never gotten to the point of wanting to. I just loathe. I, I'm almost at a point of stopping reading after, <laughs> after, after work, especially when you read a lot of bad prose. But uh, um, no, I don't I don't have that. Uh, and I, I'm always concerned with people that do. We have a joke at the office. Uh, whenever we have an intern or a new applicant, I always ask them if if they think they're a poet. Yeah. And if they say yes, we basically throw them out the door. And <laughs> Do you, are you a poet? Do you write poetry? Someday I. Yeah, uh, we're hacks here. Yeah, we shovel words. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you do. Um, What's the best place to find uh, other find your work other than Salt Lake Magazine? Uh, that, that's about unless you want to go back and uh, and Google me, you'll find all kinds of good shit. But uh, Salt Lake Magazine is where I work. Uh, it's um, it's an on, it's an honorable job. Well, you mentioned but you mentioned Instagram. You oh me- yeah, you mentioned Twitter. Right. Talk about. I mean, what, what that's true. It's uh, at Glenn. What is it? Yeah, it's at uh, G. Warchel on uh, Twitter. That's W-A-C-H-O-L? W-A-R-C-H-O-L. R-C-H-O-L. Yeah, and um, like today, I, I try to do a lot of that because that's part of the landscape these days. So instead of, frankly, instead of me writing a blog or a story or an article on a DABC's meeting today, I tweeted about five times, mm-hmm. just saying what's going on. And, you know, that 140 characters can pretty much cover mm-hmm. a lot of the news, or at least as much as people want to commit time to read. Twitter you know? is where people get a lot of their news today. Yeah, they yeah. Just, yeah. With a link to back it up, mm-hmm. um, it can be, um, it can be very, a very... It sounds horrible for journalists to say that because we all looked down our noses one time at writing less than 500 words. I mean, mm-hmm. that was considered a tiny story mm-hmm. but now you know you realize you just boil that stuff down and often that's all that's really worth saying mm-hmm. you know unless you are committed to letting everybody have their say for instance which both newspapers in this town used to do yeah so you'd have somebody make you know there's sometimes people not worth talking to because you know what they're gonna say yeah. i know i know exactly <laughs> what you mean uh, let's not call them for a comment it's just it's gonna be the same old stuff right you could you could probably text them and say can i quote you as saying you know i'm I'm very disappointed and heartbroken by what you wrote, Glenn. Mm-hmm. We used to always get those at the Tribune from from our sources. And you can also just go to their Twitter page and see what they said about it. <laughs> so if you go to, if you get Salt Lake Magazine, all of your Twitter and all of that stuff, the, the links are probably listed there as well, right? Yes, yes. There'll be, yeah. there'll be links for, there'll be links for the magazines for the magazine's Twitter accounts, which links to mine. And, you know, we're, 
they used to call this small lake city but it's even more ridiculous now mm. you know we're all just sort of interlinked and the magazine actually it, it only comes out once a month you do 12 issues a year no we do we do actually we do seven issues seven. a year mm-hmm. um but there, but there is a presence online. Yes, all the time, That's, every day. Yeah, there's there's stuff yeah. there all the time. So is it just Salt Lake Magazine dot, uh, dot com dot com slmag slmag dot com? Yeah, you know, it's um, actually we're we've shifted to our online identity leads the publication right. instead of the other way around. But in our business, magazines are doing fairly well in the publishing world because. People like to have this thing in their hands. Yeah, I still do. I still yeah. subscribe to and turn the page New Yorker yeah. and you know a few magazines. And, and for fashion, which we do quite a bit of, uh, people like to have those slick, beautiful mm-hmm. photographs yeah. to look at, and it's eye candy, mm-hmm. and that's part of our lifestyle thing, you know, and travel articles mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, you know, so we try to give a sort of well-rounded look at the city. Yeah, so so bookmark SL Mag. Dot com. Right. So there's new stuff being updated there all the time. Yeah. Uh, the magazine comes out. Uh, you, you'll see it on the newsstands. And you can always put Dina Marie on the cover, by the way. <laughs> She's really, she just looks great. She photographs well, doesn't she? Um, tell your wife I said hello. She's, I will. She's a great, she's, a, she's just a great, uh, charming person to hang around. Well, she's, with. yeah. She's um, effusive. Well, yeah, she's also really a, what what's making the magazine go her her idea of what life and culture should be like and and where it falls short in salt lake city and what's absurd in in salt lake city and in the world and yeah she's pretty irrepressible so it kind of drives the magazine down the road one of those boundless energy people she's one you know she's from Texas. Now we have a Kentuckian on as our associate editor. I call them the, you know, uh, galvanized roses. <laughs> and they just, you know, you, you have to know Southern women. Uh, I, I don't know if I could take it. <laughs> Glenn Warchall, thanks a lot for talking with us. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure. Read your stuff in the Salt Lake Magazine. That's it. We're done. Yep. Uh, yep, yep. Thanks, Thank 50. You. Thank you, 50 West, for uh, uh, giving me some French fries and a place to sit for a while. Thanks, Dylan, for doing this. Um, You're welcome. Producing. I'm the producer. Oh, yeah, you produce the show. That means he turns on the microphones and sets up the microphones and that. Oh, that's where you edit it. Although there's little editing, really, right? Mm-hmm. You'll just go home and upload it, right? Do I have to say goodbye now? It's your podcast. You can do what you want. Okay. Well, I, I think I think I like many of the listeners are are fine with it. If you wanted to just go ahead and wrap this up. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up. That's it for the Let's Go Eat show. I'm Bill Allred. Remember, when you're pouring the drinks, always make mine a double. Well, you know, just leave the bottle. <laughs> <laughs>